0: CHAPTER three OF A BULLET FOR CINDERELLA by john d MacDonald This LibriVox recording is in the public domain On Friday morning it was not until I opened the bureau drawer to take out a clean shirt that I knew somebody had been in the room. I had stacked the clean shirts neatly in one corner of the big middle drawer. They were scattered all over the drawer as if stirred by a hasty hand. I went over all my things and saw more and more evidence of quick, careless search. There was nothing for anyone to find. I had written down nothing about the elusive Cindy. It did not seem probable that the maid or the woman who had rented me the room had done this, nor did it seem probable that it had occurred on the previous day while I was out. I checked the door. I distinctly remembered locking it. It was unlocked. That meant someone had come in while I had slept. Fortunately, from long habit, I had put my wallet inside the pillowcase. My money was safe. Some cool morning air came through the door, chilling my face and chest, and I realized I was sweating lightly. I remembered how Fitz could move so quietly at night. I did not like the thought of his being in the room, being able to unlock the door. I did not see how it could have been anyone else. I wondered how he had found the motel so easily. I had given the address to no one. Yet it could not have taken too long on the phone, maybe an hour or an hour and a half to find where I was registered. It would take patience, but FitzMartin had waited over a year. I had breakfast, looked up an address, and drove off to see the girl of the cracked, treasured picture, the girl who unknown to herself had eased great loneliness and strengthened frail courage. Dr. Buck Stamm was a veterinary. His home and place of business was just east of town, a pleasant old frame house with the animal hospital close by. Dogs made a vast clamor when I drove up. They were in individual runways beside the kennels. There were horses in a corral beyond the house. Dr. Stamm came out into the waiting room when the bell on the door rang. He was an enormous man with bushy red hair that was turning gray, He had a heavy baritone voice and an impressive frown. We're not open around here yet, unless it's an emergency, young man. No emergency. I wanted to see your daughter for a minute. What about? It's a personal matter. I was a friend of Timmy Warden. He did not look pleased. I guess I can't stop you from seeing her. She's at the house, wasting time over coffee. Go on up there. Tell her Al hasn't showed up yet, and I need help with the feeding. Tell her Butch died in the night, and she'll have to phone the Bronsons. Got that?" I can remember it. And don't keep her too long. I need help down here. Go around to the back door. She's in the kitchen." I went across the lawn to the house and up the back steps. It was a warm morning, and the door was open. The screens weren't on yet. The girl came to the back door. She was medium tall. Her hair was dark red, a red like you can see in old furniture made of cherry wood, oiled and polished so the sun glints fire-streaks in it. She wore dungarees and a pale blue blouse. Her eyes were tinted gray, her mouth a bit heavy and quite wide. She had good golden skin tones instead of the blotched pasty white of most redheads. Her figure was lovely. She was twenty-six or perhaps twenty-seven. There are many women in the world as attractive as Ruth Stamm, but the expression they wear for the world betrays them. Their faces are arrogant or petulant or sensuous. That is all right, because their desirability makes up for it, and you know they will be good for a little time, and when you have grown accustomed to the beauty there will be just the arrogance or the petulance left. But Ruth wore her own face for the world. Wore an expression of strength and humility and goodness. Should you become accustomed to her loveliness, there would still be all that left. This was a for keeps girl. She couldn't be any other way because all the usual poses and artifices were left out of her. This was a girl you could hurt, a girl who would demand and deserve utter loyalty. I guess I'm staring, I said. She smiled. You certainly are. She tried to make smile and words casual, but in those few moments, as it happened so very rarely, a sharp awareness had been born, an intense and personal curiosity. I took the picture out of my pocket and handed it to her. She looked at it and then looked sharply at me, eyes narrowed. Where did you get this? Timmy Warden had it. Timmy I didn't know he had this were you at that place in The camp with him yes Wait a minute your father gave me some messages for you He says Al hasn't showed up and he needs help with the feeding and You're to phone the Bronsons that Butch died during the night Her face showed immediate concern That's too bad Who was butch? a nice big red setter. Some kid in a jalopy hit him and didn't even stop. I should phone right away. I would like to talk to you when you have more time. Could I take you to lunch today? What do you want to talk to me about?" The lie was useful again. I'm doing a book on the ones who didn't come back. I thought you might help fill me in on Timmy. He mentioned you many times we used to go together. I—yes, I'll help all I can. Can you pick me up at twelve-fifteen? Here?" I'd be glad to. And—may I have the picture back?" She hesitated, and then handed it to me. The girl in this picture was eighteen. That's a long time ago, she frowned. You didn't tell me your name yet. Howard. Tal Howard." Our glances met for a few seconds. Again there was that strong awareness and interest. I believe it startled her as much as it did me. The figure in the picture was a girl. This was a woman. A fulfillment of all the promises in the picture. A mature and lovely woman. And we were shyly awkward with each other. She said good-bye and went into the house. I drove back into town. For a long time I had carried the picture and the photograph in my mind. Now reality was superimposed on that faded picture. I had imagined that I had idealized the photo-image, given it qualities it did not possess. Now at last I knew that the reality was stronger, more persuasive than the dreaming. I found the old warden house and chatted for a time with the amiable Mr. Syler, who had purchased it from George Warden. It was a big, high-shouldered frame-house, and he had cut it into four apartments. Mr. Syler needed no encouragement to talk. In fact, it was difficult to get away from him. He complained of the condition of the inside of the house when he took it over. "'That George Warden lived here alone for a while, and that man must have lived like a darn bear.' In addition, he complained about the yard. When I took it over, I didn't expect much grass, but the whole darn place had been spaded up like somebody was going to plant every inch of it and just left it alone. That was a clue to some of Fitzmartin's activities. He was a man who would do a good job of searching, and the isolation of the house behind high plantings would give him an uninterrupted opportunity to dig. I drove back out through April Warmth and picked up Ruth's stam at the time she suggested She had changed to a white sweater and a dark green shirt. She seemed more reserved, as if she had begun to doubt the wisdom of coming along with me. As we got into the car I said, "'How did the Bronsons take it?' "'Very hard. I thought they would, but I talked them into getting another dog right away. That's the best way. Not the same breed, but a new pup, young enough to need and demand attention.' Where should we have lunch? Where can we talk? The coffee-shop at the Hilston Inn is nice." I remembered seeing it. I was able to park almost in front. She led the way back through a bleak lobby and down a half-flight of stairs to the coffee-shop. It had big, dark oak booths, upholstered in red-quilted plastic. They were doing a good business. The girls were brisk, starched. There was a good smell of steaks and chops. She accepted the offer of a drink before lunch, and said she'd like an old-fashioned, so I ordered two of them. There was an exceptionally fresh, clean look about her. She handled herself casually and well. "'How well did you know, Timmy?' she asked me. "'Pretty well. In a deal like that, you get to know people well. Whatever they are, it shows. You knew him well, too, I guess.' "'We went steady.' It started seven years ago. Somehow it seems like longer than seven years. We were seniors in high school when it started. He'd been going with a friend of mine, Judy Currier. They had a sort of spat, and they were mad at each other. I was mad at the boy I'd been going with. When he wanted to take me out, I went. And we went together from then on. When we graduated, we both went up to State College at Reading. He only went two years, and then came back to help George. When he quit, I quit, too. We came back here, and everybody thought we were going to get married." She smiled a small, wry smile. I guess I did, too. But then things changed. I guess he lost interest. He worked very hard. We drifted apart. Were you in love with him? She gave me a slightly startled glance. I thought I was, of course. Otherwise we wouldn't have been as close. But I don't know as I can explain it. You see, Timmy was very popular in high school. He was a good athlete, and everybody liked him. He was president of the senior class. I was popular, too. I was queen of the senior pageant and all that sort of thing. We both liked to dance, and we were good at it it was as if people expected us to go together it seemed right to other people and that sort of infected us i guess maybe we fell in love with the way we looked together and felt the responsibility of what other people wanted us to be we made a good team you understand that of course when it finally ended it didn't hurt as badly as i would have thought it would if it hadn't ended we would have gone on and gotten married and. I GUESS IT WOULD HAVE BEEN ALL RIGHT. SHE LOOKED PUZZLED. WHAT KIND OF A GUY WAS HE, RUTH? I TOLD YOU, POPULAR AND NICE AND UNDERNEATH. I DON'T WANT TO FEEL DISLOYAL OR ANYTHING. ANOTHER DRINK? NO, WE'D BETTER ORDER, THANKS. AFTER WE HAD GIVEN THE ORDER SHE FROWNED BEYOND ME AND SAID, THERE WAS SOMETHING WEAK ABOUT Timmy." Things had come too easily. His mind was good, and his body was good, and he made friends without trying. He'd never been tested. I had the feeling that he thought that things would always be that easy all his life, that he could always get whatever he wanted. It worried me, because I'd learned the world isn't like that. It was as though nothing had ever happened to him to make him grow up and i used to wonder what would happen when things started to go wrong i knew he'd either turn into a man or he'd start to whine and complain he turned into a man ruth there was a sudden look of tears in her eyes i'm glad to hear that i'm very glad to hear that i wish he'd come back i think you would have seen that i'm right After he stopped going with you, who did he go with before he went into the army?" Her eyes were evasive. No one. I lowered my voice. He told me about Eloise. Her face became more pale. So it was true, then. I couldn't be completely certain, but I suspected it. It made me sick to think that that could be going on and it was part of the pattern everything came so easily i don't think he even realized what he was doing to himself and to george she was trash everybody was sorry and shocked when george married her timmy told me about eloise and he told me he was sorry about it he wanted to come back so he could make things right i guess he knew he couldn't turn the clock back and make things like they were before but he wanted to be able to make amends of some sort I don't think George has ever suspected. But even if he knew now it couldn't hurt too much, he knows what she is now. What was she like? Quite pretty, in a sort of full-blown way, a tawny blonde with a kind of gypsy-looking face. I don't know where she got those features. They're not like the other people in her family. She was a year ahead of me in school at first, and then in the same year and then a year behind me. She never did graduate from high school. She was dumb as a post as far as schoolwork is concerned, but smart in other ways, very smart. She was sloppy, you know, soiled collars, bare, dirty ankles. She always soaked herself in perfume. She had a very sexy walk, full hips and a tiny waist, nice legs. She had a lot of little provocative mannerisms, boys used to follow her around like stupid dogs, their eyes glazed and their tongues out. We used to make fun of her, but we hated her, and in some funny way we were jealous of her. She did as she pleased. She always seemed to be mocking everybody. It was a very good marriage for her, to marry George. Then the three of them were living in that house. I guess she got bored. Being right there in the house, once she got bored, "'Timmy had as much chance as hamburger in a panther cage. "'I guess they were careful, but in a place this size people get to know things. "'Quite a few people were talking by the time Timmy went away. "'I hadn't had a date with Timmy for over two years when he went away.' "'Then Eloise went off with a salesman. "'That was so stupid of her. "'She had everything she wanted. "'George believed in her. "'The man's name was Fulton.' He was a big, red-faced man who drove a gray Studebaker, and came to Hilston about once every six months. Eloise ran off almost—no, it's over two years ago. George had to be out of town on business. People saw Eloise and Mr. Fulton right there in this place, having dinner one night, bold as can be. They must have left that night. When George came back, they were gone. Did he try to trace her? He didn't want to. He was too badly hurt. She'd packed her prettiest things and taken the house money and gone without even leaving a note. I'll bet that some day she's going to come crawling back here. Would George take her back? I don't know. I don't know what he'd do. I've been trying to help George. She blushed. Dad always teases me about the way I keep bringing kittens and homeless dogs back to the place he says my wards eat up all the profits it's sort of the same with george he hasn't got any one now not a soul not any one in the world he's drinking all the time and he's lost most of his business i do what little i can cook for him sometimes get his room cleaned up get his clothes in shape but i can't seem to make him wake up he just keeps going down and down it makes me sick I saw him at the store. He wasn't in very good shape. He acted strange. The store is doing almost no business at all. The lumberyard looks all right. I was out there to talk to Fitzmartin. He was in the same camp. I know. He told me that. I—is he a good friend of yours? No. I don't like him, Tal. He's a strange man i don't know why george hired him it's almost as if he has some hold over george and i have the feeling he keeps pushing george downhill. i don't know how or why he should he kept bothering me he kept coming to see me to talk about timmy it seemed very strange what did he want to talk about it didn't make much sense he wanted to know where Timmy and I used to go on picnics when we were in high school. He wanted to know if we ever went on hikes together. And he acted so sly about it, so sort of insinuating, that the last time he came it made me mad, and I told him I wouldn't talk to him any more. It seemed like such a queer thing for him to keep doing. He's creepy, you know. His eyes are so strange and colorless. Has he stayed away? Oh, yes. I got very positive about it he had such an unhealthy kind of interest in timmy i wondered if it was the same sort of thing with you but if you are going to write about him i can understand your wanting to know things the honesty in her level eyes made me feel ashamed there was an awkward pause in our conversation she fiddled with her coffee-spoon and then not looking up said timmy told you about eloise did he tell you about me she was blushing again He mentioned you. He didn't say much. I could make something up to make you feel better, but I don't want to do that." She raised her head to look directly at me, still blushing. "'This isn't anything to go in your book, but it's nothing I'm ashamed of. And maybe you can understand him better, or me better, if I tell you. We went steady during our senior year here. A lot of the kids, a lot of our friends who went steady taking it for granted that they were going to get married as soon as they could, they slept together. It was almost taken for granted. But Timmy and I didn't. Then we both went up to Reading. We were both away from home. We were lonely and in a new environment. It it just happened. It got pretty intense for a few months, but we began to realize that it wasn't helping anything. We stopped. Oh, we had a few lapses accidents, times it wasn't meant to happen, but we stopped, and felt very proud of our character, and so on. You know, I sometimes wonder if that is what spoiled things for us. It's a pretty Victorian attitude to think that way, but you can't help wondering sometimes. I felt ill at ease with her. I had never come across this particular brand of honesty. She had freely given me an uncomfortable truth about herself, and I felt bound to reciprocate. I said too quickly, I know what you mean. I know what it is to feel guilty from the man's point of view. When they tapped my shoulder I had thirty days grace before I had to report. I had a girl, Charlotte, and a pretty good job. We wondered if we ought to get married before I left. We didn't but I took advantage of all the corny melodrama, man going to the wars, and so on. I twisted it so she believed it was actually her duty to take full care of the departing warrior. It was a pretty frantic thirty days. So off I went, smug about the whole thing. What soft words hadn't been able to accomplish the North Koreans had done. She's a good kid. But you're back, and you're not married? No. I came back in pretty bad shape. My digestive system isn't back to par yet. I spent quite a while in an army hospital. I got out and went back to my job. I couldn't enjoy it. I used to enjoy it. I couldn't do well at it. And Charlotte seemed like a stranger. At least I had enough integrity not to go back to bed with her. She was willing in the hopes that it would cure the mopes. I was listless and restless. I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Finally they got tired of the way I was goofing off, and fired me. So I left. I started this project. I feel guilty as hell about Charlotte. She was loyal all the time I was gone. She thought marriage would be automatic when I got back. She doesn't understand all this, and neither do I. I only know that I feel guilty, and I still feel restless. What is she like, Tal? Charlotte. She's dark-haired, quite pretty. Very nice eyes. She's a tiny girl, just over five feet, and maybe a hundred pounds, sopping wet. She'd make a good wife. She's quick and clean and capable. She has pretty good taste, and her daddy has yay bucks stashed. Maybe you shouldn't feel guilty. I frowned at her. WHAT DO YOU MEAN, RUTH? YOU SAID SHE SEEMS LIKE A STRANGER. MAYBE SHE IS A STRANGER, TAL. MAYBE THE YOU WHO WENT AWAY WOULD BE A STRANGER TO YOU TOO. YOU SAID TIMMY CHANGED. YOU COULD HAVE CHANGED TOO. YOU COULD HAVE GROWN UP IN WAYS YOU DON'T REALIZE. MAYBE THE CHARLOTTE WHO WAS AMPLE FOR THAT OTHER TAL, HOWARD, JUST ISN'T ENOUGH OF A CHALLENGE TO THIS ONE. SO I BREAK HER HEART. Maybe better to break her heart this way than to marry her, and break it slowly and more thoroughly. I can explain better by talking about Timmy and me. I don't understand. When Timmy lost interest the blow was less than I thought it would be. I don't know why. Now, after all this time, I know why. Timmy was a less complicated person than I am. His interests were narrower. He lived more on a physical level than I do. Things stir me. I'm more imaginative than he was, just as you are more imaginative than he was. Suppose I'd married him. It would have been fine for a time, but inevitably I would have begun to feel stifled. Now, don't get the idea that I'm sort of a female long hair, but I do like books, and I do like good talk, and I do like all manner of things. And Timmy with all his beer and bowling and sports-page attitude, wouldn't have been able to share. So I would have begun to feel like sticking pins at him. Do you understand? Maybe not. I'm the beer, bowling, and sports-page type myself. She watched me gravely. Are you, tell? It was an uncomfortable question. I remembered the first few weeks back with Charlotte when I tried to fit back into the pattern of the life I had known before. Our friends had seemed vapid and their conversation had bored me. Charlotte with her endless yak about building lots and what colored draperies and television epics and aren't those darling shoes for only four ninety five and what color do you like me best in and yellow kitchens always look so cheerful. Charlotte had bored me too. My Charlotte, curled like a kitten against me in the drive-in movie, wide-eyed and entranced at the monster images on the screen, who traded platitudes, had bored me. I began to sense where it had started. It had started in the camp. Boredom was the enemy, and all my traditional defenses against boredom had withered too rapidly. The improvised game of checkers was but another form of boredom i was used to being with a certain type of man he had amused and entertained me and i him but in the camp he became empty he with his talk of sexual exploits boyhood victories and gargantuan drunks he had made me weary just to listen The flight from boredom had stretched my mind. I spent more and more time in the company of the offbeat characters, the ones who before capture would have made me feel queer and uncomfortable, the ones I would have made fun of behind their backs. There was a frail headquarters type with a mind stuffed full of things I had never heard of. There was a corporal, muscled like a Tarzan, who argued with a mighty ferocity with a young, intense, mustachioed, marine private about the philosophy and ethics of art while I sat and listened and felt unknown doors open in my mind. Ruth's quiet question gave me the first valid clue to my own discontent. Could I shrink myself back to my previous dimensions? Could I once again fit into the world of job and Charlotte and blue draperies and a yellow kitchen and the Saturday night mixed poker game with our crowd? If I could not shrink myself, I would never fit there again and i did not wish to shrink i wished to stay what i had become because many odd things had become meaningful to me are you Tal? she asked again maybe not as much as i thought i was you're hunting for something she said the strange truth of that statement jolted me you're trying to do a book and that's just an indication of restlessness you're hunting for what you should be, or for what you really are." She grinned suddenly, a wide grin, and I saw that one white tooth was entrancingly crooked. Tad says I try to be a world mother. Pay no attention to me. I'm always diagnosing and prescribing and meddling.' She looked at her watch. "'Wow! He'll be stomping and thundering. I've got to go, right now. I paid the check, and we went out to the car. On the way back I steered the conversation to the point where I could say, "'And I remember him talking about a girl named Cindy. Who was she?' Ruth frowned. "'Cindy? I can remember some—no, there wasn't any girl named Cindy in this town, not that Timmy would go out with. I'm sure he never knew a pretty one. And for Timmy a girl had to be pretty.' Are you certain that's the right name? I'm positive of it. But what did he say about her? He just mentioned her casually a few times, but in a way that sounded as though he knew her pretty well. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I got the impression he knew her quite well. It defeats me, Ruth said. I turned into the driveway and stopped in front of the animal hospital and got out as she did. We had been at ease and now we were awkward again. I wanted to find some way of seeing her again, and I didn't know exactly how to go about it. I hoped her air of restraint was because she was hoping I would find a way. There had been too many little signs and hints of a surprising and unexpected closeness between us. She could not help but be aware of it. "'I want to thank you, Ruth,' I said, and put my hand out. She put her hand in mine, warm and firm, and her eyes met mine and slid away, and I thought she flushed a bit. I could not be certain. "'I'm glad to help you, Tal. You could let me know if you'd think of more questions.' The opening was there, but it was too easy. I felt a compulsion to let her know how I felt. "'I'd like to be with you again, even if it's not about the book.' She pulled her hand away gently and faced me squarely, chin-up. I think I'd like that, too. She grinned again. See? A complete lack of traditional female technique. I like that. I like it that way. We'd better not start sounding too intense, Tal. Intense? I don't know. I carried your picture a long time. It meant something. Now there's a transition. You mean something." "'Do you say things like that just so you can listen to yourself saying them?' "'Not this time.' "'Call me,' she said. She whirled and was gone. Just before she went in the door I remembered what I had meant to ask her. I called to her, and she stopped, and I went up to her. Who should I talk to next about Timmy?' She looked slightly disappointed. "'Oh, try Mr. Leach.' head of the math department at the high school. He took quite an interest in Timmy. And he's a nice guy, very sweet." I drove back into town, full of the look of her, full of the impact of her. It was an impact that made the day, the trees, the city, all look more vivid. Her face was special and clear in my mind, the wide mouth, the one crooked tooth, the gray slant of her eyes. Her figure was good, shoulders just a bit too wide, hips just a shade too narrow to be classic. Her legs were long with clean lines. Her flat back and the in-swept lines of her waist were lovely. Her breasts were high and wide-spaced, with a flavor of impertinence, almost arrogance. It was the coloring of her, though, that pleased me most—dark red of the hair, gray of the eyes, golden skin tones. It was nearly three when I left her place. I tried to put her out of my mind and think of the interview with Leach. Leach might be the link with Cindy. I must have been a half mile from this stamp place, when I began to wonder if the Ford Coop behind me was the one I had seen beside Fitz's shed. I made two turns at random, and it stayed behind me. There was no attempt at the traditional nuances of shadowing someone. He tagged along a hundred feet behind me. I pulled over under the shoulder and got out. I saw that it was Fitz in the car. He pulled beyond me and got out, too. I marched up to him and said, "'What the hell was the idea of going through my room?' He leaned on his car. "'You have a nice, gentle snore, Howard. Soothing.' "'I should tell the police.' "'Sure. Tell them all.' He squinted in the afternoon sunlight. He looked lazy and amused. "'What good does it do you to follow me?' "'I don't know yet. Have a nice lunch with Ruthie?' "'She's a nice little item. All the proper equipment. She didn't go for me at all. Maybe she likes the more helpless type. Maybe if you work it right you get a chance to take her to—' He stopped abruptly and his face changed. He looked beyond me. I turned just in time to see a dark blue sedan approaching us at a high rate of speed. It sped by us, and I caught a glimpse of a heavy, balding man with a hard face behind the wheel, alone in the car. The car had out-of-state plates, but it was gone before I could read the state. I turned back to Fitz. There's no point in following me around. I told you I don't know any more. I stopped because there was no point in going on. He looked as though I had become invisible and inaudible. He brushed by me and got into his car and drove on. I watched it recede down the road. I got into my own car. The episode made no sense to me. I shrugged it off in my mind and began to think about Leech again. End of chapter 3